You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Michael Moss, who is the author, most recently, of a book called Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants exploit our addictions. And this is a follow-up to an earlier book, which is called Salt, Sugar, Fat, How the Food Giants Hooked Us. So perhaps you may notice a theme. Welcome, Michael. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Look, I think a lot of people have observed that obesity is an issue, particularly in the United States. And a lot of people have kind of wondered why this is, why you see this discontinuity. And of course, people have pointed to what we eat and how we eat. And, you know, they say that it's got to have something to do with that. It can't simply be due to lack of exercise and and other sorts of things. And, And you point to processed food, right? And you talk about the food business and your earlier book is called Salt, Sugar and Fat. And the thing that I think a lot of people are puzzled by, there's this mismatch notion that we evolved to pursue certain ingredients that were scarce in our ancestral environment. Now, all of a sudden, they're super abundant. And so we don't know how to control our appetites. And that leads to right sort of bad health. But those people would say, look, we've had salt and sugar and fat in abundance in many different times and places throughout our history, right? Certainly the Ancient Romans who were upper class had access to this, and certainly at the courts of Europe, they had access to this, and yet you didn't see the same level of unhealthy eating. Well, maybe they ate too much, but they didn't kind of get the same sort of obesity levels. And you highlight the importance of the processed food. There's something about processing food and the way in which we manufacture it industrially, which is is critical to the story. So could you talk a bit about how much of what we're seeing is a result of perhaps this mismatch, just the abundance of availability of these ingredients and how much of it is due to the Mm. specialness of the processed food business. Yeah. You know, I love that. I love the term mismatch, which I first heard from a scientist who studies the brain up in Yale, Dana Small, who was one of the people I went to kind of with that question. Look, we're in so much trouble with food these days. Is it proper to start thinking about these food products uh, which dominate the grocery store as being addictive like cigarettes and alcohol and drugs and i have to say i was quite skeptical when i first started asking that question because there's a there's a lot of seemingly legitimate pushback that the industry has to that to that notion but one of the surprising pushbacks i got was from dana small who said you know michael it's it's not so much that food is addictive because we by nature are drawn toward not just eating, but overeating in in lots of interesting ways. It's that the nature of our food has been changed so dramatically by the food companies Mm -hmm. in the last 50 years in a way that's caused overeating, which used to be a really good thing for most of our existence, to become an everyday thing. And from her perspective, that's been the problem is the easy, fast, cheap, access to foods that, you know, manufactured in a way and engineered by a way by these companies that are designed to sort of tap into our basic instincts and our basic biology that, that 
draws us toward food and causes us and drives us to overeat is Dana sort of sees that, you know, the mismatch being that at today in the last 50, because this has really happened in the last 50 years, our biology hasn't had a chance to catch up. And so that part of the brain that is wowed by these products and urging us to eat more and more, there's no counterbalance that we've developed yet that says intuitively, wait a minute, I'm getting too much of this. This is, this is not a good thing to be overeating right now. Right. So I had an interesting conversation with a philosopher from University of British Columbia who wrote this book called Drunk, and he talks about why alcoholism is a problem. And he points to two things, right? One, we've had alcohol for a long time, but the two things that kept it from being such a huge problem in the past were, number one, it was the beverages that they had were inefficient alcohol delivery devices, and the invention of distillation made it so much easier. And then the second was that they had all these cultural mechanisms that may have kept us from over drinking. Do you see analogies there? I mean, I think about cigarettes, right? So people weren't dying like flies of lung cancer when you had cigars and pipes and maybe even snuff. But when the cigarette was invented, this just made it so much easier, more convenient. It accelerated the speed of Mm. arrival of nicotine into the system right it was this it was sort of a change in the, in the form factor of the nicotine delivery device and then we didn't have yeah. any kind of cultural thing that said no only smoke two a day or something like that i guess we didn't need we didn't need a cultural constraint on overeating in, in the past right. but yeah. we didn't have the same efficient turbocharged industrially produced yeah just kinds of foods yeah no i'd like you thinking on that and his thinking the so, the, you know, the first book I read, Soul Sugar Fat, was kind of focused on those three ingredients as being this unholy trinity, if you will, in which the mm. food company relies on to get us to love its products and, and in many cases to want more and more. And so I, I really sort of focused on those three as, a, as an entity together that really sort of characterizes these ultra-processed foods, which basically when you take those three ingredients away, there's not sort of much left to those food products. You know, and it was at the end of that book, when the book came out, one of the very first questions I got from a news reporter, I think it was a TV journalist from London who said, you know, Mr. Moss, excuse me, you know, you're ending salt, sugar, fat on a really positive note here, saying that information is power and knowing all the tricks that these companies are up to can, can help us decide for ourselves how much and what kinds of things to eat. But he says... Isn't this stuff you're writing about addictive like drugs? And if that's the case, mm. how can we say we have any sort of control over our actions? And I, I sort of backpedaled that I'd been avoiding the A word mm. throughout salt, sugar, fat, because to me, it seemed a little too cost, a little too sharp and acerbic. And that's why I was sort of preferring the word kind of hooked in some yeah. ways. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, that's a really interesting question. And to get to the, and I, you know, I mentioned I was very, I was very skeptical at first, but I came 180 degrees in terms of believing that in some ways, these food products are even more problematic, more addictive for us than cigarettes, alcohol, and even some drugs. And one of the things they have going for them is what you mentioned, speed. Everything about these food products from the manufacturing to the packaging to the ultra processing that's designed in a way to hit the reward center of our brain as fast as possible 
is designed for maximum speed. And when you talk to researchers who used to study drugs and now have switched over and are studying food to understand how we've gotten in so much trouble with processed food, they've discovered that speed is the hallmark of addiction. Sort of the faster a substance can hit the brain, the more apt we are to lose control and, and react and act compulsively to that substance. And so you can even measure the speed that other substances have in reaching the brain. I think tobacco smoke is something around 10 seconds to sort of fully engage the brain. But because our neurological system was designed to attract, originally to attract and, and this, the and this food. Is why, for instance, this is for instance why crack is more addictive, say, than yeah, exactly, right. or so intraven intravenous drugs. Right. The smoking of was much faster. And so people turn to turn to that. Exactly. More speed, more addiction is true within drug categories as well. And one of the interesting things about food is that our neurological system, it's, at, at first I used to think that drugs were hijacking the brain, right? But they're actually using the channels that are naturally built in us to, to attract us to food. And so food has this cute little game that it plays, which is that when it touches your tongue, or rather reaching the brain, it's not the food reaching the brain, it's the signals that are created by that contact with your saliva and then the taste buds that race to the brain. And people have done these cool studies where they're asking people, push a button when you taste sweet. And putting that little bit of sweet taste on the tongue will have them pushing that button in less than one second compared to the 10 seconds that, that tobacco needs to fully engage the brain. And so in some ways, including that sort of rapid onset or the rapid sort of engagement of the brain is, is one of the ways that speed is a powerful force in processed food and getting us to sort of lose that willpower, to lose that ability to control what we're doing I think you, you make the point also that there's more to it than that, right? Because the easiest way to get sugar into the system is just to have a big bowl of sugar in front of you and start eating it, right? And uh, Or if you have like a big, I don't know, slab of lard and just start hacking away at that or just take a shaker of salt. But right. our systems would presumably very, very quickly kick in and say, no, 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 that's not good. So what is it about the food companies? What are they able to do to the foods that make us want more of them than we would if they were even in their purest forms. Yeah, they, they discovered this phenomenon called sensory-specific satiety. Sensories, you got to love the language that they use mm -hmm. when they're kind of talking to each other about maximizing their efforts to or maximize the allure of their products. And one of them is sensory-specific satiety, which basically says if you get too much of one thing, your brain, the stop part of your brain, the thinking part of the brain will kick in and go, Michael, you're getting too much sugar now. You've got to like move on to something else. And you can kind of imagine, and it's just an imagination that we're evolving, you know, in the great rift valley of Africa. And, and in a way where through natural selection, we're encouraged to eat lots of different things, you know, in the presumption that then we're going to get all the, all the vitamins and minerals and nutrition that, that we sort of need. And so even filling up to the extent we're filling up on something that's really sugary, although they didn't really have really super sugary well, things. There are stories right about these folks that would, you know, find the honey and they would just like eat, you know, like a gallon of honey in one sitting. <laughs> and then, and then because it was so rare, right? It was relatively rare. Well, that's the thing about sugar too. It's, it's, it is one of those things that, and, and again, this is kind of guesswork why we are from birth attracted to sugar. Nobody really knows, but it, it could be that sort of going back in time, it was a rare 
thing that could give you the power boost to to run away from the mastodon i mean right i mean it's sort of like being that rare thing so your sensory the sensory appeal and your attraction to it would be enhanced it's sort of logical i guess in that sense the other thing too with kids i think the kids see sugar as a bodybuilder as a brain builder because of the inherent energy so i think that's why kids are so attracted to to sugar as well but the industry does knowing that too much of one thing can cause us to kind of shut down and not like their products they're really good at combining different mm-hmm. additives including sugar and fat for example there's a wonderful research that some folks did where they discovered that combining sugar with fat the brain's tendency to shut down is mm-hmm. much diminished and so we become much less alarmed by the amount of sugar in something that's also fatty and of course you can think of any number of products out there that are both sugary and fatty milkshakes come to mind. For me, you could probably do this experiment yourself. Take a carton of whipped cream or half and half and start drinking that. And I think you're going to get to the point really quickly where you're going to go, God, I'm like, I'm drunk with this stuff enough already. But add some sugar in there and turn that into like a Haagen-Dazs milkshake. And I, I, I yeah. guarantee you're going to be drinking a lot more of that, a lot more of the sort of the fat in that than you, the other ones would. But also, I think you can disguise it to some degree. So, for instance, Coca-Cola, I think it's the, the bitter flavors and the those sorts of things that disguise the sweetness, right, to some degree. Yeah. So, I spent time with a, this guy named Jeff Dunn, who's, who's actually fascinating. He was a former president of Coca-Cola for North America, South America. He was one of their one of their fiercest warriors in their competition with Pepsi. And, and and then at one point, Jeff is down in Brazil where they're trying to woo the emerging middle class there with kind of small size Cokes because they don't have very big refrigerators in, in the barrios. And, and and as Jeff tells it, this kind of like light bulb goes off in his head where he goes, so these people need a lot of things, but another, you know, a Coca-Cola or another Coca-Cola isn't kind of like one of the things high on their list. So he came back and he tried to steer the company into selling more water and eventually quit and joined the other side, if you will, where he took the lessons he learned from marketing Coke and applied them to marketing baby carrots, which is just a whole nother story to sort of talk about, which is how do you, how do we turn the tables on these companies and, and get ourselves excited about things that are good for us and not just things that are for us. But but Jeff was one of the, you know, when he was at Coca-Cola, he talked to the flavorologist who studied Coca-Cola and asked him, look, what, and he was kind of looking at the time for sort of a new marketing angle, something new to pitch. And he said, they came back to him and said, you know, the thing about Coca-Cola is that it's so perfectly blended through these 20 or 30 you know, mystery secret ingredients with the formula still somewhat of a secret. It's so perfectly blended though, that it's imminently forgettable, right? You take a sip or you drink half a glass and your brain is not being overwhelmed by any one flavor and is forgetting that it's just consumed, you know, that half a glass and is quite willing and eager to keep drinking. And you see that kind of perfect engineering throughout the grocery store where companies are formulating their products in a way to make them forgettable, but also still attractive and uh, consumable. Yeah, you dig into the difference between wanting and liking, right? Which is a distinction that people talk about quite a bit in the addiction space. I mean, the book Hooked is really 
a lot about addiction science and what is addiction and not only sort of conceptually, but what is the formal definition? And, and I was wondering if you could kind of back up a bit and talk about these, what is the importance of this? Because there's a legal importance here. The cigarette industry, right? There's, there's some analogies that you make between the cigarette industry and the food industry. And, and the cigarette industry sort of had a moment where they went from denying the, the addictive nature of the product to admitting the addictive nature of, of the product. Yeah. There- you know, so I just start with the wanting and liking and it's sort of a, it's sort of a loop thing, but that, that originally I started looking at that cause I was just sitting on the couch in my living room and, and with my laptop kitchens not too far away and out of the blue and I'm writing something down and out of the blue comes this desire to put the laptop down, stand up, go to the refrigerator and snack on last night's dinner, which in this case were some meat kebabs it wasn't anything it wasn't anything like outrageous it wasn't even like the strawberry shortcake from the day it's sugary but but i'm like going like where did that want that desire come from so that kind of took me into the whole world of brain scientists who who've been using you know laboratory rats to kind of figure out kind of what it is about you know how is our brain structured in a way to get us to want things. And then how does kind of liking come into it as well? And there were some really classic rat studies that were done by a scientist named Roy Wise, who was the first person to sort of measure and show that with a little electric stimulus, you could cause a rat who was perfectly satiated, not hungry at all, to suddenly become ravenously hungry with a little stimulus to a particular part of his brain that controls that sort of wanting. Um, and then another scientist came along later and sort of showed that, well, is it really wanting that we're being driven by or toward, or is it, or is it liking that's kind of attracting us to these foods? And one of the, one of so, the so like, big, liking, ha- liking is related to kind of post-consumption satisfaction, right? Where, yeah. Where wanting is anticipating the consumption, right? And, and one of the things you find in people who abuse drugs, um, is, is that they're really driven by the wanting part of that. And sometimes the liking part can even go down, meaning that they want the drug. They want it. They want it. They want it. Then when they get it, they're not even really that happy and or even satisfied well it's like how you feel after you after you eat a bag of chips right? <laughs> well <laughs> yeah thinking? kind of yeah 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 i know absolutely in yeah. fact so more recently people is a great researcher out at stanford now eric stice who who was one of the first people to shove a group of subjects in, you know one by one into an fmri a brain scanner mm-hmm. and watch their brain on food because he and dana small had sort of figured out you can because normally when you're in the brain scanner, you can't chew, you can't move your mouth or it'll blur the imagery, right? But it was Dana who figured out that she could sort of pipe into, you know, from the control room milkshake and drop that drop by drop onto the person's tongue and or even put chocolate squares on their mouth and have that to sort of melt of their tongues. And without any motion, without any chewing motion, they could actually see the brain sort of get fired up and get excited about wanting and liking and, and all of that in terms of the food. But it was, it was Eric who sort of first studied people over time, looking at their brain response to tasting food 
And he found that those people who gained weight among that group of people, the desire that they had for the food, the wanting that they had to eat went up, but the liking actually stayed steady and maybe even went down a little bit, which mm. is again, is something that you see in the world of a world of drugs. It's like all desire and less satisfaction maybe kind of perpetuates the, the, the that, that cycle of kind of overconsumption. But for me, one of the most powerful things that kind of came out of that was this notion of memory and then go, you know, go back to me sitting on the couch and getting a craving out of nowhere for some kebabs. Where's that coming from? Well, that's coming from the memories that get implanted in us starting at a really early age. And I think that besides speed, that's one of the other ways that I would argue that food, processed food is even more powerful than tobacco, alcohol, drugs. Because in, in the case of food, the memories we have for eating begin at a really early age, possibly even when we're still in the womb, depending on what our mother is eating. And we hold those memories, those food memories for the rest of our life. So it's quite conceivable that food memory I had for kebabs was just percolating up or something had prompted it, you know, unbeknownst to me to appear while I was sitting on the couch doing something perfectly happy, doing something else. And so we get prompted and that's what makes and, and for the food industry, of course, and that's why advertising marketing is so important to the process. Yeah, right, because the, kebab, the, ke the kebabs weren't branded, right? So is the whole branding exercise one that helps to kind of cement the memories, right? Kind of give yeah, them no, some, well, some specificity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no, you you can. And there have been studies. It was Eric Stice again who put some kids in the, in the fMRI again and looked at their brain response to to soda, especially Coca-Cola. Mm -hmm. And those kids who were familiar with Coca-Cola sort of instantly responded to pictures of the Coca-Cola brand and their brain would get excited by that. It's really good. The, the logo and the branding. And that's one of the problems in the supermarket now. And getting back to that question, like, what can we possibly do to change how we value food? How can we turn the tables on the companies? Almost all of the marketing and all of the advertising for food in the grocery store is concentrated in that 90% of the store where there are branded items so that the produce the inner, the oil, inner, uh, my, my cousin calls talks about the outer loop diet right <laughs> which is yeah, right, you right, know, right. The, the produce the grocery the dairy the meat you know that's yeah. the outer loop and then the inner loop is when you go down yeah. those aisles and then you have all the yeah, boxes yeah, 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 and yeah. the cans and stuff right yeah another way of thinking of it is that those are the foods you can actually recognize i mean you can actually mm -hmm. see your see the food stuffs that went into those foods. Whereas that 90% of the rest of the store, you know, you open up the package and it's, there's like no way you could even tell what it was that went into making this product, right? But you can see the produce and you can see the dairy and the meat and what have you. But the reason there's not, there's not marketing and advertising for produce is that it's a commodity, right? So I actually did a story for the New York Times Magazine once where I I'm amazed that it landed on the cover of, of the magazine because it was a, a fictitious marketing campaign for what I was sort of guessing was one of the hardest things to sell, especially to kids in, in, the, in the produce oil, broccoli. And I actually got an advertising company that worked for big food, junk food, to do a pro bono campaign for me, marketing broccoli. And the very first thing that they that they decided upon was that there was no way they were going to sell broccoli as this healthy thing. I mean, the government's been telling us to eat more broccoli for decades and, 
and we're not because we just don't want to hear that. Also, they were finding ways to market it, you know, in ways that was fun and exciting, clever and all the things that the industry uses to sell, to sell junk to us as, as well. I mean, the dancing raisins, right? Yeah, you could have, I mean, dan- right, yeah, you could have dancing raisins yeah. or, or whatever. That could be something. That- yeah, yeah, yeah. So you do have a little of this. And one of the exceptions to this is avocados, which we see during the Super Bowl, right? But that's because avocado is a strong brand. Something like broccoli, you're never going to get farmers to chip into a kitty to create a big marketing campaign because that's going to help the guy or the gal down the road who's selling broccoli just as much as you are. You know what I mean? So they're inhibited from adopting marketing campaigns because of the lack of branding in their part of the world, with some exception, like like the raisins or the or the avocados or pineapples. Yeah, I mean, I think in California, the fruits and nuts are all there's a you know these collective bodies, gov- these quasi-governmental bodies that will force the farmers to contribute to advertising. But the, but you need to have that link, right? You have the experience, the delightful experience and the ad and the ad cements the delightful experience. And it's going to be hard if broccoli does not provide you with that delightful experience. It doesn't do any good to kind of cement that memory. Yeah, right? you have to find, yes. I mean, I think their ad campaign was actually really fascinating. And, and in fact, one broccoli grower on the East Coast picked up on it and began adopting some of the same things. So but sort of going back to that implanting of memory, what the food companies have realized is that you know the more we experience something, the deeper those memory channels are. And so the easier it is for them to use what psychologists call cues to get us excited. I mean, two people driving down the road, right? See the golden arches. And they could have completely different reactions to seeing those arches depending on what their memory bank is, what their experience is from eating. The person's been eating there a lot and has deep memory channels for McDonald's is going to get all excited and pull off the highway as soon as they can to to go there, where the other person is going to, they're not even like seeing the golden arches yeah. if, they're, if they're not somebody who eats there or doesn't have that memory for it. So besides speed, memory is hugely powerful for the food industry to, to get us to kind of keep coming back to these products. Well, you also talk about distracted eating, right? And the extent to which other factors, maybe stress, anxiety, or distraction will make you, I guess, more susceptible or more vulnerable to the addictive properties or hooking properties of, of the foods. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, yeah. And it kind of goes back to the sort of mindless thing, which somebody coined a while ago is to sort of describe the kind of eating that a lot of us do where we're not paying attention to the food. And some of these products are designed in a way to be mm. eaten. Yeah, you talk about the, the bag of Oreos, right? That, that was designed <laughs> yeah, yeah, to yeah. sort of sit on your desk with a gigantic wide open mouth and, you know, bite-sized yeah, yeah, pieces yeah, and so forth. Yeah, yeah, So Oreos typically used to and still do to some extent come in these trays with these little slots and you get like one cookie per tray. Mm-hmm. And so theoretically, theoretically, you're kind of pulling one cookie out and, and not grabbing kind of a whole handful. But at one point they discovered they could take like mini Oreos and put them in what's called the doy bag, which is this sealable bag that pops open on the bottom so you could plunk it down on the desk next to your computer keyboard. And the top opens really wide and without even looking at the bag, and I'm sort of, you know, imitating that motion right now. Just reach and grab a whole handful without having those little trays and ridges to 
inhibits you and the potential for eating much more than you than you think you are is, is, is much higher with those products. But to kind of go back, the other thing that's going on here too is sort of that is the realization that, that a lot of us eat for emotion. We're not mm-hmm. truly biologically hungry, right? I mean, I think somebody's done the calculation that you can go, you can go 24 hours or more before the body starts kicking in, in ways that tells you you're really hungry and you really should eat. Anything in front of that, anything less than that 24 hours is you're eating for memory because it's that time of day and you typically eat that time of day, or you're eating for emotion. We saw this during the pandemic, right? I mean, Palombas thought that we at least were going to get away from one of those most, that most treacherous corner of the processed food world called the bending machine, right? Because we were working at home, but so many of us under the stress and the strain of the pandemic went grocery shopping and came home and turned our kitchen cupboards into vending machines because we were buying out of emotion kind of these snack and junk foods that we hadn't had since we were kids because of the combination of the memory and the everlasting memory for those products and the current sort of stress and emotion that was going on. But one of the best examples I came across of this was, was that product called the Lunchables, right? Which is just a fabulous story. I took a whole chapter in salt, sugar, fat to tell it because I was able to meet and spend time with the inventor of the Lunchables, a guy named Bob Drain, who worked for Hormel, the meat company, which then became part of Kraft. And they had this problem, which is they had too much processed cheese, too much processed ham. They were looking for a new way to sell it. And Bob Drain kind of put a team together and they sat down in a motel room for days on end. It schemed up what became the Lunchables, right? This sort of tray of bits of processed cheese and bits of ham and then crackers because they they couldn't use bread because it would go stale. And this is something that would have to sit in the warehouse on the shelf for weeks on end. And when they presented the product to a control group of parents, it said, do you think your kids are going to be eating this or would be interested? The parents would go, I thought, are you out of your mind? That's disgusting. Especially when they came up with things like pancake lunchables and taco lunch. Oh, and the pizza lunchables, right? Which is just like this cold dough and some sauce and a little cheese. But 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 what but what Kraft realized was that to the kids, it wasn't about the food. And when the CEO of the company was even conceded that in an interview. It's not so much, it's not that we're talking about the food here. We're talking about kind of the emotional value of this product. Because when they came into the lunchroom carrying a Lunchables, and it was kind of packaged in a way that looked like a gift-wrapped present from their parents, they were like the cat's meow of the lunchroom. And that kind of empowerment, being able to assemble their own product, and that's the reason why the company came up with that fabulous marketing slogan, which is, you know, all day you have to do what they say, but lunchtime is all yours. Mm-hmm. And when that marketing campaign hit the airwaves and those Lunchables hit the shelves, it became the billion-dollar-a-year sales product that is today through, through the emotional power of what everyone agreed was not a very attractive food product in any other way. Now, what I found interesting is that you talk about the diet industry, right? And so a lot of people are aware of the obesity problem. And so there's a demand for remedies, right? There's a demand for foods that 
one would think could provide the same level of satisfaction while at the same time be healthier. And so we've got this gigantic diet industry and the diet industry is for the most part owned by the same companies that control the non-diet industry. (laughs) And from what I gather, not from just from your book, but from other sources is that the main difference between the, the, the diet products and the non-diet products are the label. (laughs) I mean, I I have to say, I've been crawling through the underbelly of this processed food industry for a decade now. And I have to say that for the first seven years, eight years until I came across this, I mean, I really tried hard not to see this industry as this evil empire that intentionally set out to make us lose control and become sick on their products because, you know, in the long run, is that really even in their interest? I saw them as companies doing what most companies want to do, which is to make as much money as possible by selling as much product as possible. And in their case, by maximizing the allure of those products as much as they can. Uh-huh. But what I discover that this is now back in the late seventies, early eighties, that none other than Heinz, which was one of the early pioneers in high fructose corn syrup, a big maker of ketchup as you probably know, but also what the company that really drove consumption of frozen French fries and multiple varieties and promoted them as something that you could you know, that would enable you to turn your kitchen into a drive-in restaurant without needing to get in your car and go wait in line. When Heinz discovered that Weight Watchers was for sale and bought Weight Watchers as this incredible thing that they could do, which is basically on one hand, sell products that caused a lot of people to lose control and gain weight. And then later, sell them another product that ostensibly could sort of help them regain control of their eating products. That's when I personally could no longer sort of defend this industry as not being evil. Philip Morris went into the nicotine patch business, right? I mean, we, we wouldn't. There you go. The same. Prob- we wouldn't find that problematic, would we? I mean, we'd, we wouldn't. We'd well, be like, absolutely. All right. we're, well, of course we would. I mean, a company selling you addiction and then selling you the cure for addiction. But it's not really that because the whole processed food industry followed suit and began buying some of the bigger dieting methods out there. And then, as you mentioned, began creating their their own diet versions of products, which really weren't very different than the full calorie version. That's what gave us the Hot Pockets and then sitting right next to it on the shelf, the lean pockets. But the problem is that the, even the best of those dieting methods, and I'm thinking Weight Watchers here, even the best of them, when people came along and did the sort of true analysis of their success rate, they were able to help people lose on average five or 6% of their weight before giving some of that back in terms of weight regain. If you're and if you're obese, five or six percent of your weight, losing five or six percent of your weight may help a little bit, but it's not gonna it's not gonna help you become non-obese. So not only are they selling addiction, but they're selling addiction cures that don't work for most people. Mm-hmm. And certainly not in the ways that we're convinced through the advertising and stuff that that they do work. So they're selling us a, a you know, that to me 
I think that qualifies as pure evil on their part. Well, I mean, there's there's obviously a demand side and a supply side to this problem where the demand side is the fact that people are hitting that lever, you know, repeatedly. And then the yep. supply side is that there's somebody making in the lever. Is the food industry kind of more like the tobacco industry or is it more like the, I mean, the entertainment industry, right? I mean, entertainment industry mm-hmm. wants you to go to Spider-Man and they want you to go to Spider-Man 2 and they want you to go to Spider-Man 3 and, and they, you know, they want, Netflix wants you to, as soon as you're done watching the first episode of Sopranos, they want you to watch the second episode of, I mean, how broad should we be thinking about addiction? I mean, metaphorically, every company in the planet wants you to become, quote, addicted to what they've got on offer. Right. There's another word, too, that I came across recently with my former newspaper, The New York Times, I think self-described itself as being a media slash attention company, right? So mm-hmm. attention, yeah. right? They're all trying to get yeah. us to that's, pay that's attention. That's pretty honest. To them, pretty honest. And totally honest. And their product, right? Is the news media addicted? Absolutely for some people. And, and that's one of the first things I did in reporting the, the most recent book, Hooked, was trying to figure out, like, what does the word addiction even mean? And as you probably know, doctors... Um, physicians don't even really like to use the word addiction. It's not very scientific. They prefer substance, um, not substance abuse, but it has to get, it has to do sort of more with, with sort of a, a control issue than addiction. But one of the most fascinating moments came for me as a journalist was when, and I think you mentioned this, Philip Morris, um, largest tobacco company in the year 2000 became the first tobacco companies to publicly concede that smoking was not only bad for you, but was in fact addictive. And that was a, when you go back a few years, one of the interesting things about smoking and the legal framework for holding tobacco companies accountable is that we still didn't want to believe that smoking was addictive through the mid nineties. We still wanted to put the lion's share of responsibility on people who were smoking it. So people who brought lawsuits against the tobacco companies for making them sick or killing their loved ones were losing because the jurors are going, oh, come on, why didn't you just like stop smoking? But around the mid-90s that turned when the science began to show definitively that some number of people truly lose control and become addicted to tobacco. And when that happened, you know, Philip Morris was one of the companies that settled with the attorneys general, the big lawsuit that held them accountable for the healthcare costs of treating people who are sick from smoking. But then Philip Morris also sort of publicly acknowledged, conceded that smoking was in fact addictive. And when they did that, that same year, the CEO of the company was in some litigation being asked some questions and the, the, the plaintiff's attorney said, so, so Mr. CEO, Tell us, what's your definition of addiction? And he goes, well, addiction is a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. And I love that definition. Mm-hmm. I mean, implicit in there is it's a involving substance that's or an action that's harmful to you. But I love it for a few reasons, because especially the word some, because not everyone falls for junk food just like not everyone falls for mm-hmm. tobacco, alcohol, there are even people who could use heroin casually without becoming addicted, without mm-hmm. losing control, without being compulsive. They can take it or leave it. 
And the same is true with alcohol, as you know, the same is true. There are people who can smoke one cigarette a day. And the same is also, and I thought that really, that really explained to me also why not everyone goes crazy for Twinkies or Oreo cookies or hot pockets. Only some of us. And if you look at the obesity rate, which was passing 42% before the pandemic, that portion of us is actually that of people who are losing control of eating habits is like incredibly big and heading to one in two Americans. But I love that definition of addiction because it's, it puts the owners back sort of on the product, but you know, a product with addictive qualities doesn't have to be something that addicts everybody to be problematic. Well, I mean, you know, we look at the pandemic that just, we just went through and as serious as it was, I mean, smoking kills half a million people in America every year. And so in three years, we'll have more dead people from smoking than we'll have from the pandemic from beginning to end. And yet our kind of response to it is not quite as, you know, we're not shutting down the world to get rid of smoking. I mean, we wouldn't need to, but we still have seen a dramatic decline in smoking rates. And I don't think that the dramatic decline that we've seen was motivated by cigarette company executives becoming enlightened or acknowledging the addictive nature of their cigarettes or making changes to the product so that people don't like them as much. So, I mean, why, why would we expect, and you describe there's this meeting in the very beginning of salt, sugar, fat, where all of the food executives get together in secret to essentially acknowledge the, the problems that are being caused by their products. Why would we expect them to wake up one morning, feel guilty and say, okay, I'm just going to stop making these products. <laughs> you get rid of all the delight and get rid of all the craving properties. I mean, that's not how we kind of reduced our, our smoking rates. I'll tell you a funny story in that because, you know, those executives were brought together for that somewhat secret meeting back in 1999 by a cabal of insiders in their own company who are becoming alarmed about their increasing culpability, responsibility for obesity and type 2 diabetes and gouts and on and on. And they were actually urging those executives to stand up and start doing the right thing by consumers. By and large, the response was, are you out of your minds? I mean, we are beholden to consumers, yeah, but we're also beholden to stock owners, shareholders, and there's like no way we're going to mess around with the formulations for our products if that's going to result in lower sales. We'd be out of their minds. But, but coming out of that meeting, something really interesting happened, which is the biggest portion of that cabal of insiders was at Kraft. And they got Kraft to unilaterally do some of the things they were hoping the whole industry was going to do. So they got Kraft first to cut back on the advertising they were doing to kids on Saturday morning, which mm -hmm. is like all junk all the time. Then they looked at the packages and they said, aren't we kind of misleading people here when We've got a bag of cookies and we're only giving them the calories for one serving in that mm -hmm. bag, knowing that, you know, a good many people are eating the whole bag all at once and are going to think that they only got that one serving calories when in fact, shouldn't we put putting like total number of calories even on the front of the package? And then the third thing they did, they went to their food engineers and said, you know, thou shall no longer 
simply add as much salt sugar fat as you want to, to enhance the allure of your products. We're going to put limits on those things. It was actually an extraordinary moment of enlightenment, ethical responsibility, you know, at this company craft. And guess how long that program lasted? I would say it was a few weeks when the competitors, especially in the cookie aisle, realized that Kraft was sort of pulling back a little bit on sugar and fat. They swooped in by making even bigger, richer, more sugary yeah. stuff. And Kraft realized it couldn't go it alone. And so they, so they abandoned that. Yeah, I think you mentioned what the Hershey came out with this. <laughs> yeah, right. Or the like super Hershey bar yeah. sort of thing that nobody could resist. So, so back to your original question, do I expect these companies to suddenly become moral? Absolutely not. But I'll even go further than that. I'm also not even expecting the government to sort of step in and force them to change. Because, I mean, look at what we had, to, you know, with the Obama administration. I mean, hats off to Michelle for making food and childhood obesity sort of a national conversation. But all the companies had to do was to turn to her husband who was struggling with the economic crisis that he inherited. All they had to do was say, Guess how many jobs we have? And I think it was something like 20 million. Do you really want to mess around with 20 million jobs at a time you're trying to write the, uh, write the economy? And so their campaign, instead of being labeled what I would argue should have been, let's cook, became let's move, mm -hmm. which kind of put the onus kind of back on us. And, you know, I see that a lot with these industries that are creating products that are addictive, right? They're, the ones that are really successful are able to kind of shift the blame to us, to get us to sort of feel guilty. And that's kind of why the industry buying up the dieting industry works so well, right? If they can get us to think that we're to blame, that's like gravy on top of the, on top of our icing, on top of the, on top of the cake for, for them. And so I think what has to happen, and again, I'm just a journalist, I'm not a policymaker, but I, I think that what has to happen, well, two things. One, people have to cause these, have to get these companies to change. And that's why I think people who focus on changing the eating habits of the next generation kids are doing God's work out there. But the other thing I think that has to happen is that, you know, we have to be able to show these companies that they can make money, they can make a profit selling things that are cheap, convenient, yummy, but also at the same time, good for us. And when well, that can, happens... Can, can they, though? I mean, Well, we, you know... We, so we saw Pepsi, right? The CEO of Pepsi announced that she was going to steer the company away yeah. from all the bad stuff. And I mean, yeah, look, there's it's a hard sell, right? I mean, <clears throat> you got to do what makes the most money, right? It's a hard sell because it takes time for people to change their own eating habits, right? Take salt, for example. It's kind of weird. Unlike sugar, which we're born liking, right? We don't develop a taste for salt until maybe like six months of age. But the companies then go crazy with that. And anybody who's been kind of on a salt-free diet under orders from their doctor because of sodium's link to high blood pressure and possibly heart disease knows that you know, if you cut back on salt, everything's going to taste like crap for six weeks, and then it's going to be, mm -hmm. start tasting pretty good, right? It's even longer than that, the time that you need to change your eating habits kind of in a more dramatic way. That's why I hate these diet schemes that come out and say, you know, 
change your eating habits in 21 days. No way. We're talking about a year. We're talking about changing a, a lifetime of bad eating habits. I would say it's more realistic to think about that required an entire year of sort of high attention on your part and avoiding all the pitfalls and the traps out there so that these companies wanting to create products that are less toxic for us, less harmful for us, probably need a whole year for people in order to change their eating habits and become attracted to this. And they don't have a year. I mean, somebody once blamed our entire sort of food trouble on tech stocks because back in the 1980s, right, Wall Street went gaga for tech stocks, which were usually successful, even though they weren't even making any money. And when that happened, those same kind of investors turned to blue chip food companies and said, you know, what have you guys done for us lately? And that's when these food companies began thinking about investment, long-term investment, thinking about their economic sort of modeling of success, not in terms of years at a time, not even months at a time, but like weeks and days. And it takes time to develop new products and put them on the market and get people to like them. These companies no longer have the luxury of that kind of time. Mm -hmm. So when we look at smoking, right? I mean, there obviously were some policy moves, whether it's taxing or prohibiting in public places. I think it's going to be difficult to prohibit the consumption of Oreos <laughs> in public places, right? Because, you know, it's not, it's not obviously something you can detect or whatever. But there are, have been initiatives to tax certain foods, right? So here in Berkeley, where I live, we tax the sodas and, and so forth. Are those a potential solution or is it really about education and behavioral change? How's that going? Do you know that the soda tax in Berkeley? I don't know. The one thing that did upset me, though, is that they exempted diet drinks, which diet, oh, no. as far as I know, are at least as harmful, perhaps even more harmful than... What's another conversation? Uh, yeah, okay. yeah. See, that's pretty That's pretty interesting. But so, yeah, from what I've heard, and I haven't looked at this myself, but from what I've heard that in those few places, Philadelphia, Mexico, the country that have adopted a tax, put a tax on sugary items, it seems to work to diminish sales, right? Because we love money. <laughs> We're addicted to money as, mm -hmm. as much as we are to, to sugar, right? And so you can kind of see the parent going through the soda aisle with their kids and they're looking at the suddenly higher priced soda, especially if it sort of advertises on the shelf that there's like a 10 cent tax on this, right? The brain's doing this calculation going, now maybe I really don't need the soda right now. So they call it sort of nudge marketing, sort of subtle things that can be done to to get us to to change our ways. And so I think the taxes probably work. Other people are trying to come up with warnings on the labels, which you also mm -hmm. see on cigarettes. I think people have studied that will argue that the taxes work better than the than the warnings. Because one of the ways that the food companies have been so successful in dominating our eating habits is that the consequences of overeating are kind of long-term. I mean, there's weight gain, but even if you look at obesity, it tends to be, I think, it tends to be sort of people incrementally adding weight on five pounds this year, five pounds the next. It's not like suddenly overnight. And with longer-term health consequences of bad eating for heart disease, et cetera, we're talking a couple of decades down the, down the road, or we have a really hard time 
thinking about sort of spot, you know, making spot this, you know, standing at the Starbucks counter and seeing that luscious pastry there next to the luscious sweet drink and going like, how yummy is that going to taste in the next two minutes versus how am I going to look in a bathing suit next summer? Or what is my heart doctor going to be saying to me 20 years from now? Which, you know, and all of that kind of comes back to this question, like, how do we change how we value food, given that we've allowed these this handful of big companies to sort of tell us how we should value food for 50 years now? And I think that's the, the, the crux of the, the, the problem that we're facing. Well, I mean, it seems to me that a big part of it is the food culture that we have, right? You know, I mean, I cook every night and people are like, how do you have time for that? And it takes a lot less time than going out. But most people aren't really familiar with with you know how to cook. And I remember when I was a kid, I, I had a we had a cooking class in school. And I, I don't think that that's do. I mean, does anybody have cooking class in seventh grade anymore? <laughs> like, what happened? To, like, it used to be called home ec, right? And home ec was. Right, right. They, I think they kind of uh, uh, abolished it. Right, right, is, right. is there a way to so, kind of educate people young at young ages to appreciate? food and, and cooking and eating in, in sort of a different way? It's in writing Salt Sugar Fat, I discovered that up until the eighties, there was this thing called home economics where mm-hmm. girls, but to some extent boys were taught how to like shop for food, think about it, cook it, prepare. It sort of was part of like a really good thing to do for yourself. And about the mid eighties, a couple of things happened. One sort of the pressures on home economics teachers to teach other things like what do you do when you get pregnant and you're only 16 or how do you get a job after high school became much more sort of pressing than learning how to cook for your family and the other thing that happened is that the processed food industry began kind of co-opting and buying up home economists and kind of turning them toward their own kind of designs you may be familiar with betty crocker right Mm -hmm. who wasn't a real person at all she was the imagination of a marketing a marketing person but she became like the the head number one kind of home economist who basically cooked people how to like open packages of processed food and 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 one of the things that drove that too as well as in the 80s was this idea that cooking was too time consuming Mm -hmm. and was too inconvenient. We were all becoming busy, busy people Mm -hmm. with no time to cook. And so the industry ran with that. I think to a large extent, it's overblown. I I think there are lots of things you can do to, and I think cooking is a fabulous thing because it processed food. The problem with processed food is speed. The biggest antidote to that is slowing down. Yeah. By cooking foods yourself, but it doesn't have to be, you know, an all day thing. I mean, I have a recipe for spaghetti sauce down to 90 seconds now <laughs> and Michael Pollan might be appalled, but I throw a little garlic in a pan of olive oil and add a can of plum tomatoes and throw, if I've got some dried basil, I'll throw that in too. That's it, 90 seconds. And granted, if I let it simmer for a couple hours, the family's more apt to eat it. But the actual cooking time, 90 seconds. And I think a lot of people don't realize that. So, mm-hmm. so yes, I would love to see going back to sort of prioritizing children, focusing on them to help them, you know, develop good eating habits before they can 
develop bad ones, teaching them how to cook in schools would just be a fabulous sort of thing to do. And you could do it and you could do it in a way that's not preachy too. There was a, there was a program here in Brooklyn, New York that taught kids who didn't even know how to use tableware because they ate out of paper bags at fast food mm-hmm. restaurants. They taught them food cooking and preparation and shopping kids who'd never been in the supermarket kind of based on the notion that food is power and kind of the politics of food and showing them how this handful of processed food companies has been telling them how to value food all their life and and how it wasn't all that difficult for them to regain control of that part of their life. Yeah, I remember that one of the first cookbooks I got as a kid, as I started cooking at a young age, I, I started noticing that most the recipes all had like a can of Campbell soup as an ingredient. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I realized that the cookbook I made that was, recipe. <laughs> was, was the cookbook was published by by Campbell's, and then I started <laughs> looking at these magazines like Red Book and Family Circle. These were sort of the homemaker yep. magazines, and, yeah. and all the recipes had can of jerky fried onions in them, and like they were all they were recipes. So, so yeah, you know, you were cooking, but the recipes all had some kind of product placement in them that was designed to accelerate the cooking process and make it faster. And I think there was a message that your time is too valuable to spend cooking, that cooking is chore. And, you know, you're a busy, busy person, maybe a busy housewife. And so don't waste your time on this. One of the scariest things for the processed food industry was when Julia Child walked into that PBS studio with a skillet and a chicken, and that started the Cooking with Julia show because there's a, there's a great scene in the, in the recent documentary in her where they were prefacing her emergence as somebody who could help people who didn't cook learn how to cook. Yeah. You know, until then, it was these companies sort of selling their products to us and selling you know, and teaching us how to prepare, open and prepare and warm up their products as, as being a way of cooking. And Julia Child was the, you know, the antithesis to that. And so to some extent, you know, even back then in the 60s and 70s, my mom was a huge fan of, of Julia Child. She she helped push back on that. But of course, the overwhelming majority of us sort of still stuck with the processed food. I interviewed someone yesterday who was talking about how parents shoe if they are cooking they shoe the kids out of the kitchen and mm-hmm. so the kids are not actually kind of growing up yeah. participating in in this and so it kind of gets lost and the more generations yeah. go by and it doesn't seem like the rise of the cooking channel and the rise of all these celebrity chefs it seems like people will watch this stuff and then as soon as they're done watching it they'll call uber eats and they know yeah. something right yeah those are more yeah that's not really cooking right those all those cooking entertainment things it's it's more like you know entertainment attention but yeah those are not things that can help us then sort of turn the tv off and then and then cook i've been one of those people guilty of kicking their kids out of the kitchen until i sort of realize that and it's true of all chores with kids right it's like so much harder you know, to help them learn how to do chores and just like do the stupid thing yourself. And so I think we, we fall into that trap as parents kind of across the board, but also with cooking. If you could find ways though to engage your kids, absolutely that's in the house. And also sort of have this conversation with food. And my wife likes to tell this story where we were trying to get them to eat less sugary breakfast cereal and we put some arbitrary limit on like six grams per serving. 
And so then when we went shopping with them, you know, they would kind of turn that into a hunt, Easter egg hunt, looking for those few boxes that would have such little sugar in them. But also kind of started this conversation about like, what's up with sugar? Why do these companies use it? And what are the consequences of using mm. sugar? Which again, it's hard for kids to think about 10 years from now, but they love that engagement and they get it. They're smart. So preaching to them that sugar is bad is probably not nearly as effective as engaging in a conversation about them and presenting it in terms of like, as I said, the politics of of food, you know, do they really want to do the bidding of these companies and make them more powerful and richer? Or do they want to, you know, think for themselves? So do you think in the near future that companies like Kraft or like General Mills or Kellogg's will, in the public perception, become like Philip Morris and RJR, where college students won't want to work for them or investors won't want to invest in them? Will they sort of figure out ways to enhance their image and, you know, apply their scientific know-how to the creation of, of healthier food. Yeah. And like, you know, well, we have marches down through Brooklyn where people are protesting Oreo cookies. Mm-hmm. Probably not. I think one of the things that saved the industry is that down deep, because of those carved memory channels from our childhood, we all kind of love Pop-Tarts and Doritos and Cheetos and we have a lifetime of like cartoon characters and sports celebrities selling those things to us. It's really hard to kind of turn on them and see them for the true hidden costs that they, they have on our long-term, but even short-term health. I think one of the things though, that could change things in courts of law and public opinion is this notion of addiction, right? If people start seeing that, our eating habits, that we can, you know, these products are designed in a way that causes us to lose control of our eating habits, causes us to no longer have the willpower to eat the way we want to eat. If people, if people start seeing these foods as addictive, I think that could be a watershed moment, as it was with tobacco, and, and then we the can sac- start with the sacklers, right? I mean, the, the, or with or with painkillers, or yeah. with yeah, um, on and on and on. That's I, th- I think that's a key. That's something that has to happen before we can take that next step, and then ask the question: Okay, so how do we hold these companies accountable, and how do we change things going forward, and how do we help people who are losing control of their over their eating habits? change and regain control over them. Well, we barely scratched the surface. Uh, There's a lot in here, salt, sugar, fat, and also hooked. Michael, thank you so much for joining me. Hey, it's been great fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.